0: Hello once
1: again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, where I am battling a little bit of a uh, sore throat, so if I don't sound the same as I normally do, I apologize, but I do want to plow through and do something maybe a little bit different on this episode, which is, I guess you could call it a mailbag, but most of my mail is actually in the form of tweets and Twitter messages. I can be found on Twitter at Clayton Comic. And I am way behind in answering some of your questions, uh, responses. I can tell you from the last episode in which I discussed a hand in which I chose to fold my pocket aces. I've gotten a lot of feedback from many, many of you suggesting that this fold was on the tight side or maybe mistake in your mind so uh you know just to review the hand very quickly it's a king high board uh the turn brought the flush and well the turn brought the straight and the river brought the flush that's the hand i'm talking about and i ended up playing it a little bit slow so my hand was under repped now from a gto perspective in that hand yeah guys i know that pocket aces is actually a quintessential bluff catcher for the situation. My opponent, if he's competent and adequately aggressive, should be attempting to represent that flush or that straight a good amount of the time, especially when I play pot control either on the flop or the turn. So here on the river facing a bet, I folded my aces given that everything got there and many of you felt that that fold was a mistake. And I think that fundamentally speaking from a GTO perspective, it is a mistake, but I think that it's okay to fold sometimes when you have a sense of your opponent's playing style. And if you guys remember in that hand, I did point out repeatedly that he was a passive, uncreative opponent. And given that, He wakes up and bets into two of us on the river. I'm not heads up at the time when he makes the bet. So I feel that when we call that bet, the frequency with which our opponent will be turning over a hand that beats two aces is probably very close to 100%. Now against a different type of opponent, obviously we need to have some bluff catchers in our range, especially when we do pot control you need to be willing to call it down against a certain type of opponent. But this opponent was not that player. And as you guys know, I always try to find the exploits that would cause me to go away from the uh, recommended theoretical strategy from a GTO bot. So, but yeah, I got a lot of feedback, quite a few tweets about that particular hand. And many of you just felt like he could be value betting a King, Uh, For me, I just don't think that he would value bet a king there. I think that this type of opponent would need more than a king to bet, which is why I can fold two aces. But yeah, I really appreciate all the feedback. I love getting into it. Uh, You know, just discussing everything with you guys because I feel like that's how we get better. You know, why do I do it this way? Why do you think I should have done it that way? And that's really how you improve as a player and how I can improve As a broadcaster here on this podcast, maybe I should make it more clear what's going on in some of these hands and why I do the things I do. And I talk through my hand histories with all of you. So really appreciate that. I've also been getting just kind of a lot of general, you know, positive reinforcement. Like, you know, for example, no crisis. Andy O. Phillips on Twitter at Andy O. Phillips writes Clayton really enjoying the podcasts. Thank you. You know, and I give that guy a shout out because that's the kind of message that believe it or not, will actually make my day. So if you guys have never tweeted at me, but you really do enjoy listening every single week, you know, it's great to hear from you. So you might think to yourself, well, how could that make a difference to him? And you couldn't be more wrong. Every single tweet means uh, so much to me and it's really keeping me going as I, you know, try to put out this content on a very regular basis to all of you. Uh, I wanted to share a message I got on Twitter at dark soul clips, dark souls clips. Let's get it right at dark souls clips. Uh, My name is Rob. I run this humble gaming Twitter page. So shout out to dark souls clips. Uh, I cared enough to reach out and say thank you for all you do and have done for our game. I'm still a beginner. Started playing cash a couple of years ago and transitioned to mostly tournaments about eight months ago and your insights and hand analysis are invaluable. He goes on to mention that he's a New York state speed chess champion. So I have a work ethic for study. Transition from a game of complete information to a game of incomplete information has been very challenging, but I like a good challenge. So I wanted to share this with you guys because, you know, it just kind of shows us as the producers of this podcast, you know, my partnership with tournament poker edge. Sometimes we wonder, you know, what level are our average listeners and, you know, you really can't nail that down. We've got so many different people listening from all different levels. And here's a guy who kind of mastered one game speed chess and then moved into cash games. And I was learning the differences between cash games and tournaments. And to me, that's exciting that I can sort of help someone who has a love for the game and a passion for poker, as I obviously do, and help that guy maybe get better at it to me. The more you know about poker, the more enjoyable it will be for you to play. So, yeah, you'll win more often, but also you'll just understand the game on a different level. And that's what we're really going for here. That's what we're trying to do for you. So when I get you know, a message like this on Twitter, it just feels good because it lets me know that the work here is not in vain. So thank you very much, Rob, for that fine tweet really made me happy to to receive that from you. I also wanted to share, actually this one was an email that I received. I I thought it was interesting. Uh, It's from Kurt Rohrer. Dear Clayton, your podcasts are great for us. Easy to understand. So at first I said, well, what does he mean by us? And then I noticed the subject line of this email is poker. For the visually impaired, videos are almost impossible for us to follow. Now, look, guys, I want to explain this because I come from the background of, I always listened to podcasts when I would walk from my hotel to the Rio to play in the World Series of Poker. Many, many years ago, I used to listen to Poker Road Radio And later, the Tournament Tournament Poker Edge podcast, believe it or not. Uh, So for me, I always enjoyed just having the audio. So I never was really a very big video watcher type. I was more of a listener and someone that would sort of visualize poker hands in my head. So I didn't realize that this format is really the only option available to the visually impaired. So it kind of makes me feel good that the way I talk through hands is helpful for people with visual impairments, as Kurt mentions in his email, that videos are almost impossible to follow. He goes on, it would be a big help if you could say a few words about the blind poker app in your next episode. Okay, well, I don't know anything about this blind poker app, but I do think it's cool that there is a way for the visually impaired to enjoy this game that so many of us love. Uh, Back in high school, I somehow nominated myself to help literally the only blind student at my high school. Uh, I used to kind of help this kid with some of the things the teacher would be explaining if he had questions because he wasn't able to see the chalkboard or anything else for that matter. I also used to help him kind of navigate from class to class. And because of the way that made me feel back then in high school, you know, being an impressionable young man and just realizing how lucky I am to have my eyesight, although as many of you have been so helpful to point out I am colorblind, and some people have sent me links to get the glasses that correct that problem. (laughs) But obviously, being colorblind is nothing like being blind or, or visually impaired. So it is nice to know that people who either can't see or just can't see all that well would still be able to enjoy the game of poker as much as we do. That makes me really happy, and if my podcast can help with that in any way, I'm all for it. So Kurt, I want to thank you for your message. And there's your shout out for your (laughs) poker app. I hope that anyone who's looking for such an app would benefit from it. Now there's a player that I've uh, faced a few times in Vegas, Hal Lubarsky. He's probably the most famous, if you will, best known blind poker player. Um, Hal Labarsky, he's actually a really funny guy. He's got a great sense of humor. I've I've sat at his table a number of times uh, in various WSOP events, and when you play against Hal, he gets to have someone help him, but his helper basically just does the work that he can't do because of his eyes. So he doesn't get to tell them anything about you know strategy, obviously, or or even tells. But he can tell Hal that the flop is the Queen of Clubs, Jack of Diamonds, Eight of Spades. Uh, he also whispers to Hal what his own holdings are, and then he kind of narrates the action. Now, I found sitting at Hal's table with his assistant narrating the action helped me focus on the game as well. You know, he would tell you what position the race came from, and it might just sort of reinforce kind of certain strategy things. So he's informing Hal that the raise was from under the gun. But then for me, I might take that raise a little bit more seriously. Just having it spoken aloud, the raise was from under the gun. So, uh, yeah. So it is possible, obviously, for the visually impaired to play live poker. But I've never really considered before I received this email, I never considered how such a player might be able to receive training or hand histories analysis reviews and things like that, because yeah, most of it is done with a visual medium. So yeah, I'm I'm glad that our podcast can, can do that. And I try to be as clear as I can. I know that for me, if I'm on the treadmill and I'm listening to a poker podcast and I don't want to stop the podcast, rewind to find out because the announcer hasn't said for 10 minutes what the starting hand is, Sometimes our brains wander, we might have missed the action. And that's why you guys probably noticed by now, I tend to be fairly meticulous in reminding everyone what we have, what cards came out and things like that. And the reason why is because I realize it's just a little more difficult when you're just listening and you're not able to actually see the cards or see the hand history that I might be looking at on my screen. So I try to help bring it to life in that way. And long story short, it's just nice to uh, be appreciated. So yeah, if you are one of our visually impaired listeners, I'm not endorsing it. I don't really know that much about it, but I'm just passing along the information I got from Kurt about the Blind Poker app. I also want to share uh, some questions that I got quite a bit from a number of seniors around the time that the WSOP this summer was doing the WSOP.com seniors event. And it seemed to me like every senior that was getting in touch basically had the same question. You know, what is the structure like? What is the structure like? Is it a good structure? Is it a slow enough structure? I found it curious, uh, mildly interesting that, so many seniors are so concerned with structure. I don't know what that tells us exactly. I mean, I suspect that has something to do with older people wanting to get more bang for their bucks or not wanting to be forced to gamble in a really fast structure. Obviously, like in a turbo situation, you do have to take risks and maybe they prefer to play slower tournaments where they don't have to take so many risks, Uh, whatever the case may be. Look, guys, I want to talk about structure kind of generally for a minute, not necessarily just as it relates to the WSOP seniors event, but structures. And for me, it's it's a very simple thing. The structure is the same for everybody. So these players like, you know, famously Alan Kessler and others who drive themselves mad over, well, the average stack is going to be 42 big blinds when we get, to level six, it's going to be, you know, they look at every little detail of the structure. It basically comes down to, they don't want to have to take a coin flip early in the tournament, or they don't want to have to take one late in the tournament or whatever their uh, particular aversion to when they want to take a coin flip might be. But I don't really worry about that. Some of you may be surprised to hear this because I do play so many tournaments. You might think that I pick those tournaments based on the structure. But no, the one thing I really do use as a tiebreaker between two similar tournaments if I'm trying to decide which one I'd rather play is the rake structure. I think it's very interesting how many of you will look at how many big blinds by level four, how many big blinds by level eight and so on and so forth. But you were more than happy to pay 25, 30, 40% rake. Sometimes I think the rake in most tournaments is way too high. Tournament rake used to be standard 10%. And I'm talking about live events. So, you know, obviously that's almost impossible to find anymore more outside of high stakes or what have you. But when it comes to the actual structure, the blind structure of a tournament, because we're all playing the same tournament, we're all going to have the same exact structure. To me, the adjustment you want to make is if you know the blinds are going up every 20 minutes or they're about to go, they're about to double or whatever the case may be, you can make decisions about how much variance you want to take. Now, Obviously, if you're playing your $50 tournament, nightly tournament at your local casino that's always going to be a a turbo because they want to get that tournament done in a few hours in tournaments like that the basic adjustment you want to make is that you should take all the coin flips essentially and you should not be making big folds you really can't afford to make you know the hero lay down in a a turbo or super turbo type of format Likewise, if you're in a very, very slow structure like the main event or some other five or six day tournament, you can feel free to take the low variance road and just try to play small pots and avoid big, especially big pre flop all in confrontations without the nuts. So those are kind of the, I mean, the bigger overview of how you might adjust your strategy based on structure, but. I would never decide not to play a tournament because of the structure, because number one, I don't mind gambling. I mean, I'll flip a coin with you right now for a thousand dollars if you want. (laughs) So I, I don't really mind gambling. And so I don't really care that much about trying to make sure that the tournament structure limits my variance and I can basically wait for the nuts before I put a single chip in. But I'd also study the structure a little bit just to know exactly how fast I need to play. It basically comes down to faster structures require more gamble. So get it in and hope you win your flip. Okay, I got another really interesting email that's got a strategy component that I wanted to bring up. And this one comes from a listener named Rich. And Rich says, I wanted to say how much I appreciate your taking the TPE podcast where it is now. Your podcast is one of the first I listen to every week, and I really enjoy it, especially your hand reviews. Well, thank you so much, Rich. And I need to say that I appreciate TPE for giving me the opportunity to have this platform and this chance to, you know, get into kind of the nitty gritty each and every week. Rich goes on to say he's talking about when we had Dylan Thomasy on. And so this was several months ago. In his ace-ace hand, around the 19-minute mark, he flatted an under-the-gun-plus-one min-raise to try to maximize his winnings with pocket aces. The the under-the-gun-plus-one player min-raised while having a 13-big-blind stack. An under-the-gun-plus-one min-raise with a 13-big-blind stack seems like a big error to me given they're putting in about 15% In a spot where if there's action, they're likely to be out of position the rest of the hand. I could only see doing this if I had a premium and wanted action. Am I way off here? I'm generally in push bot shove mode once I hit about 15 big blinds, both online and live. So I probably bring this bias to this particular hand. Would love your... Quick take regarding playing 12 to 15 big blind stacks in general with this size stack. I'm almost always looking to push bot or reshove. Okay. So let's get into this guys. Now, you know, not that many years ago, apps like snap Shove and sites like tournament poker edge got into what is basically, you could almost memorize push fold charts for different hand strengths at different stack depths. So because of that, unexploitability, (laughs) is that a word? Uh, Well, it's impossible to exploit shoving a certain stack with a certain hand in a certain situation. And so we've all seen, I I shouldn't say we've all seen, but many poker players that have studied have seen these push-fold charts. Now, what that chart tells you is that it is profitable to go all in with a 15 big blind stack. Like for example, let's say I'm in the small blind and I have 13 big blinds and the action folds to me. Well, because my stack is so short, I'm often going to be moving all in or just folding. I'm never going to limp in and I'm never going to raise. You can find a chart that tells you the worst hand that you can do that with against an opponent who plays absolutely perfectly. And so because if you memorize these charts, you can basically do this automatically. That's where this idea of being a push bot comes in like a robot. We could teach a robot to do this. Just say, you know, how many big blinds do you have robot? And if it's in a certain range, then you just go ahead and go all in and, and, You can't lose money doing that. But what it doesn't tell you is that there may very well be another strategy that is more profitable than playing like a push bot. So, for example, if we take pocket aces in this situation, and if I'm only limiting myself to raising or folding or raising all in or folding and not giving myself the option of limping in or making a smaller raise, I'm very likely to lose profitability of my aces here. So if I always shove with my aces here, unfortunately the big blind is usually going to fold and then I don't get any value for my hand. So that's why in this email, Rich is hinting that when he has a premium hand, he might not, automatically push bot. But when he has any other hand, he usually would push bot. So if you're doing that, you become extremely exploitable because anyone who's really paying attention, you you shove and shove and shove. And then all of a sudden you min raise. If you're only really doing that with premiums, then that is super exploitable. You're really hoping that they don't pay enough attention to realize that what you've just done is, is announced to the entire universe. You have aces or Kings. So in order to not be so exploitable, many of us will have something like 13, 14 big big blinds, 15 big blinds, and we will make that smaller raise or limp in with non-premium hands. So it's all about balance. I don't want to get too deep into this, but I do want to say that what those charts tell you is a play that you can make that is unexploitable. It's profitable, and there's nothing your opponent can do about it. It doesn't necessarily mean it is the most profitable play, especially if you know that your opponent tends towards certain types of mistakes. Now, this concept, I first read about this concept many, many years ago. Ed Miller, David Sklansky, and Mason Malmuth wrote a book called No Limit Hold'em, Theory and Practice, It is not an easy read. It's a pretty serious text. It's really about understanding the theory more so than the practice, if you ask me. But towards the back of that book, David Sklansky introduces something called the SC number. So there's a chart. It's basically a push-fold chart. And that every hand has an SC number, which stands for Sklansky-Chubakov number. And that's because these two mathematicians, Davis Glansky and someone Chubakov came up with this idea of shoving X number of blinds all in with X hand and how there's no way for your opponent to exploit the strategy. Now, obviously you could profitably shove pocket aces for any number of blinds and you can't possibly be losing money in doing so. But you know, could you imagine it's the first hand of the World Series of Poker and they fold to you. It's the main event and they fold to you and you just put the whole 50,000 in. <laughs> and the big blinds, 100. Now, of course, that's not the most profitable play, but it is a profitable play. And so then you can go down from there. At what point is it unprofitable to do this same play with Pocket Kings? Well, obviously at some point, if you shove, you know, your net worth in the middle with pocket kings, it's unprofitable because your opponent can literally only call with two aces and so on and so forth. So there is a balance of what kind of stack you can actually do this with and never worry about whether what you're doing is exploitable in any way. And so when, when we're talking about game theory, we're often just trying to find a way to be unexploitable. So whether you follow the SC number that's in that green book, no limit hold'em theory in practice, or if you follow the app snap shove or whatever push fold chart you like to rely on, you can't go wrong. But I guess what I want you to know is that you could go more right. And for that reason, I would caution against simply saying I have 15 big blinds. I am now in push fold or push bot mode as Rich likes to call it. So I hope that answers your question. I really appreciate your writing in to the podcast. Let's do one more. In this mailbag episode, okay, so this one comes from a listener named Hamp, and he actually emailed me, podcast at claytonfletcher dot com. I do prefer Twitter; I'm much quicker to respond on Twitter at Clayton Comic. But if you want to email your hand history or your question, uh, you can use podcast at claytonfletcher dot com. So Hamp wants to know. Well, first he says. I'm a a listener, and it's my first time ever submitting a hand history. Well, I'm honored, Hamp, that you would would send that to me. Uh, It's been great to listen. For the last few years, your podcast has taught me a lot about tournaments. I'm 24 years old and started playing in college with my friends. I enjoy tournaments because I like going for first, like you. Well, it's good. It's good to know there are some others out there who still... Care about <laughs> flags fly forever and championship bracelets and things like that. I would describe myself as a somewhat aggressive player. And then he goes on to describe a hand from a $100 tournament on ACR with a $150,000 guarantee on the bubble. I was wondering what your thoughts are on this hand. So, it's a $109 tournament with the rake. Okay, so Hero starts under the gun with 61 big blinds and pocket jacks. We're on the button of this 150 k guaranteed tournament with a $109 buy-in, pocket jacks. He raises 2.2 big blinds. Everyone folds to the small blind who has 40 big blinds and makes it 6.4 big blinds. So back to the original razor, which is hero under the gun with pocket jacks. Okay. So what do we do? We're on the bubble of this tournament. We've raised it under the gun. We see it fold all the way around to the small blind who three X's are bet. And now it's back to us with 60 bigs. Well, you can say, We have 60 bigs, but in this hand, we have our opponent covered. So we need to look at his stack, first of all. This opponent has 41 big blinds, (laughs) 41.3 to be exact. He shares a few HUD stats here, but it's only 68 hands, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. It's a pretty small sample, but for what it's worth, this villain is running 25-16-7. So, for me, I don't want to stop raising here. And some of you may be surprised to hear that. I mean, the fact that he is 3-betting from out of the small blind after we opened under the gun is kind of a red flag. And many opponents would only do that with a very strong hand. But the problem is, we have the 4th nuts, and he's got 41 big blinds. I think... It's totally fine to just get it in here. Let's keep raising. Let's see if this guy wants to go crazy with Ace-King. We're on the bubble, yes. But for me, I'm just not trying to let him see a flop. I mean, now, if you told me his numbers are like 12, six, zero or something, then yeah, we can really lock it down. But from what we do know about this opponent, he's not afraid to mix it up a little bit. Those aren't the tightest numbers I've ever seen. They're definitely not the loosest. So I think trying to get in 41 big blinds out of our 60-some-odd big blind stack, 61 big blind stack with pocket jacks in this situation is totally fine. And if you want to do that, that's cool. That's probably what I would do. I would just make enough of a raise that he would feel compelled to shove, and then I would call. And if he shows me a hand that beats two jacks, so be it. I still have 20 big blinds here on the bubble and a chance to get back in the tournament. I know most of you try to avoid that type of variance and it's very hard to play pocket jacks. So you may wanna do what our hero in this hand decided to do which is just flat call and see a flop. So we do and we see a heads up flop in position, hero holding pocket jacks and it comes king, 10, seven, two spades, king of spades, 10 of spades, seven of hearts. Okay, all in all, pretty good flop for pocket jacks. And our opponent leads out for 1.74 big blinds into the nearly 15 big blind pot. All right, now this is a ridiculously small bet. And I would definitely want to raise it. I don't think our opponent should be making this play with a king. So it feels to me like we're usually going to have the winner here. Uh, this is a tiny bet. It is silly for him to make that bet with so many draws available on the board. And we could also raise with the intention of folding if he wants to pump it up some more because maybe he will just makes this tiny bet to induce a raise from us when he's got something like three kings or what have you. Many players who bet this small On this flop would have a hand like ace queen, pocket queens, pocket jacks. Of course, that's extremely unlikely since we have pocket jacks ourselves. But those are the types of hands you're going to see quite often. I would exploit the bet sizing with a raise and be prepared to reevaluate if our opponent either calls or re-raises. Instead, hero in this hand just calls and I have to wonder what we're putting our opponent on. I do, I'm glad he didn't fold because for this tiny bet size, we really can't fold. So the turn comes the Jack of diamonds, pretty much a gin card if I've ever seen one. And now our opponent uh, bets again. This time he makes a more reasonable bet. 9.2 big blinds into a pot of 18 big blinds. So exactly half the pot. And I think I would probably just get it in here. I know the ace queen got there and of course there's also the chance that we are up against three kings. I mean, yeah, sure, three kings probably should bet a little bigger on the flop, but some players when they, you know, flop the nuts like that, they like to just try to milk you or maybe, as I mentioned, try to induce a bluff on the flop with that tiny bet. But now he bets again, it's starting to feel more like ace king. And so I would be happy to get it all in here. And I would expect our opponent to very often Make the call. If you think about a hand like Ace-King or King-Queen, those hands now have not only top pair, but they also have a straight draw to go along with it. And they should probably be calling, given that they put in so much of their stack already. So yeah, just cheerfully shove and look to get action from hands like Ace-King, maybe even pocket Aces, and of course King-Queen. Instead, Hero just calls and... I guess that's also fine, but at some point, I think we need to try to make sure that we get all the money in here, and I'm afraid that by just flatting this bet here, we run the risk of not being able to do that. Look, when you have a set in a tournament where your opponent has 40 big blinds on the button, or on the bubble, rather, it's criminal not to get all the chips in. We need to get all in against this guy here. He's going to have ace-king, pocket aces a lot, king-queen sometimes, and he should be willing to go broke with those hands. So we need to try to make that happen right now before the scary river comes and he could possibly get away from some of his one-pair holdings. So the river comes, and it's the four of diamonds for final board of king, 7 jack, four, with no flush, and our opponent goes all in. I think, obviously, we need to call this Sure, we're losing to a few hands, pocket kings, ace-queen, but it's tournament poker. You really can't fold a monster like three jacks in this situation under any circumstances. So our hero in this hand does call, and the villain does turn over three of a kind, three kings. So that tiny bet on the flop would have gotten a little bit more action from me. I certainly would have raised that little... 1.7 1.7 big blind bet into 15 big blinds on the on the flop. I think that's a ridiculously small bet, no matter what our opponent has. Um, I did think that it was possible he could have kings there, but I understand the idea of down betting. I know that people want to be able to do that with a wide range, but nowadays I just think the down bets are getting sort of ridiculously small. I, I can't imagine betting like basically one-tenth of the pot with any hand. So that's just not something I'm on board with yet. And I think that it's uh, a mistake on our opponent's part. It did work out for him this time because it allowed us to call and then catch up with a very strong second best hand on the turn. Uh, Some notes from Hero here. Uh, The hand occurred on the bubble. I was wondering what your thoughts are. Do you think it's ever okay to fold pocket jacks to the small three bet from the small blind? Yeah, I mean, you could if you thought that your opponent would only be doing that with aces or kings. Uh, it is a little bit alarming that we race under the gun, and now there's a 3-bet from the small blind. But look, I've played these $100 tournaments on ACR, and I've seen plenty of players with this these kinds of HUD stats do this kind of play many, many times without the nuts. So I think it's way too tight to just lay down your jacks just because the small blind 3-bet. No, you need to call and play this hand in position and see what happens. So that's my answer to that one. Uh, should I be 4-bet folding here as opposed to flatting? Well, you know, maybe I'm the crazy one because I don't want a 4-bet fold. I want a 4-bet call. I was trying to get it in pre-flop because, as I said, I don't think that 3-bet from the small blind is always aces or kings. Now, I understand confirmation bias. I know that in this particular spot... You end up losing two-thirds of your stack because it actually was aces or kings. But I think that many, many players online nowadays are good enough to three-bet from the small blind, even and under-the-gun open with hands that are way worse than pocket aces, pocket kings. And therefore, we should not be looking to fold 40 of our 60 big blinds with a hand as strong as jacks. He goes on to say, I can't fold on the flop for such a tiny bet. Yes, I'm really glad you didn't even though in this particular spot it would have saved you a lot of money Uh, and once I have a set, it is very difficult to fold with an SPR of 2. Yeah, I don't mean to laugh, but of course you can't fold a set with an SPR of 2. You know, that turn card is gin for us. Once that turn card hits, I don't think you can fold uh, with these stacks against this opponent. I really don't. So... Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, we take a cooler, we take a bad beat, and then we want to email our favorite podcast host and say, you know, did I do anything wrong? You know what? I don't really think you did anything wrong in this hand. I mean, I wouldn't play it so passively pre-flop, and I did want to raise the flop bet. You didn't fold, and I think that would have been a mistake in the long run, even though in the short term, it would have saved you quite a few chips. Thank you so much for all of your emails, all of your tweets at Clayton Comic Hamp. Good luck with your journey. You're a young man. You have don't kick yourself over this hand, okay? <laughs> you had three jacks. There's no universe in which I would be advising you to throw that away. So thank you all for all of these messages. Please keep them coming. And also take some time to rate and review the podcast on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you download your listening content. And for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening.
0: Hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me Lock and intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart The hot pay we will be. While little gambling is fun when you're with me. I love it. Russian roulette is not the same without a gun. And baby, when it's love, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh. I'll get a heart, show.